And you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be guilty before the supreme court, and whoever shall say you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the hell of fire. If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way in order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you shall not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. And I'll pray. Lord, I thank you again um, for this immense privilege we have to, to come together in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And our heart's desire is that he would be exalted, Lord, and that he would have his rightful place in each of our hearts. We thank you for your word and for speaking to us as you have. And we know, God, that, that apart from your Spirit's work, that your word would remain um, hidden to us, even though you have spoken clearly. And so we ask, God, that you would speak to our hearts in such a way that we would hear you and that we would yield to you and honor you and love you in faith and obedience. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I mentioned when I started the Sermon on the Mount a few weeks ago that according to my preaching records, it was 20 years ago that I preached through Matthew. And there were a lot of you that were not here at that time. Some of you weren't even born at that time. And so I thought I'd be okay to go through Matthew again. But I will never forget, um, it was um, a remarkable um, Sunday, when I was preaching on, on this passage, on these few verses that I just read 20 years ago. And I started out that message by saying, how many of you know someone who has committed murder? And there were only one or two people um, with us that day who raised their hands and said, I know somebody who has committed murder. And when I had finished the sermon, I asked again, how many of you know someone who has committed murder? And every hand in the room went up. Because that's the intent here. Well, that's not the end of the story. After um, I had finished preaching and we sang our last song, one of the ladies in the church stood up right here in the middle of the church and said, I have to confess my hatred for someone here and ask for their forgiveness, that how much I have resented them and hated them. Very powerful time. I'm not looking for that to happen today. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it is, it's just such, it, I, I say that because clearly this is meant to be applied, to be taken to heart. It's a very, very sobering and serious passage of Scripture. And as I've already noted, one of the things that Jesus is trying to accomplish throughout this sermon is to bring into reality the very first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. And so as we approach this passage where Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, we would observe that in this one chapter, chapter 5, this is the first of six times that Jesus will say, 
you have heard it said, but I say to you. And I think it's very important at the outset to be clear that Jesus is not adding to Scripture. He is not adding to what Moses said. And I think we need to be clear on that because Scripture itself says that once a covenant has been made, then it cannot be amended. You cannot take from it and you cannot add to it. And so I don't believe that Jesus is adding to what Moses said when he says, but I say to you. Now, he is speaking as God. There's no question about that. But what he's doing is one of two things, and they could both be true. One is that he's not adding to what Moses said, but he's explaining what the law always has meant, that it has never been focused on the externals. God has always been a God who looks at the heart. It's what God said to Samuel when he sent Samuel to anoint the next king. And one son of Jesse after another passed in front of Samuel, and God kept saying, not that one, not that one. And then God had to say to him, God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance. So that's the one thing, and I'm comfortable with that, with just saying Jesus is explaining what the law has always meant. The other thing that he is likely doing here is giving a new law, not adding to what Moses did, but this is the law of his, of his kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. This is the constitution for that. And so it will parallel, and it will, in fact, in times, even repeat what was in the law of Moses. But he's giving a new law on the whole, which is the law of his kingdom. And so he says here in verse 21, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. This is the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments. It has to do with the sanctity of life. The next, you have heard it said in verse 27, will have to do with the sanctity of marriage. But here he focuses first on the sanctity of life. You shall not commit murder. That's the best understanding of that sixth commandment. Oftentimes in our Bibles in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, where the Ten Commandments are found, it'll say, you shall not um, kill. But literally, it should be understood in its context to mean you shall not murder. And it would be that um, because citizens, you and I, do not have the right to take the life of of another. Government, I believe the scripture is very clear on this, does have that right. Only of the guilty, only of those who have committed capital offenses would the government have the right of capital punishment. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Not you and I, certainly not the church. And the church has been way off, um, off its where it should be when through the centuries it has claimed the right to execute people. There is nothing in Scripture that gives the church or individual Christians or individual citizens that right. You shall not commit murder. There is a distinction between a government killing someone who is guilty of a capital crime and an individual or even a government murdering someone. We do not have that right, and so any time we would take the life of someone else, unless it would be in self-defense, it would be considered murder in our courts of law, as it should be. Any time the government takes the life of someone who does not deserve to have their life taken, it is murder. 
Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. And now the first, but I say to you. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. So you can see immediately what Jesus has done. He's taken this away from the, from the actual physical act of taking someone's life. And now he's applying it to the heart. Why would the Pharisees not see that God has always been concerned with the heart? I mean, this is obvious to us. We would say, of course, murder begins in the heart. And before you would ever pull the trigger on somebody, you've already done it in your heart many times over. Of course. But the reason the Pharisees, I believe, wanted to make this apply only to the physical act is that now it becomes doable. See, I can spend my whole life and never pull the trigger on somebody. Never murder the physical act. And so I can walk away from this going, I can feel pretty good about myself. Just like the rich young ruler did. I've kept the law, he said. I've done all these things from my youth up. And Jesus had to point out to him that his heart had not kept the law. Go and sell everything you have and then come follow me. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. And so by doing that, Jesus exposed the man's heart. He had another God, and that was his possessions. He was an idolater. But when the law is made to be merely external, then we can keep it in our own strength. But when the law applies to our hearts, and we begin to see how corrupt our hearts are, we go, I need a new heart. The problem's not the law. I need a new heart. And this, again, brings us to that place of poverty of spirit where we're going, Jesus, there is no hope for me unless you give me a new heart, which is what happens when we place our faith in him. So if you are angry with your brother, you shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Well, what's Raka? I've never been guilty of saying Raka to anyone. Probably you have not either. But Raka is a word that insults someone's intelligence. It'd be like saying, are you really that stupid? Do you really not understand this? Can you be that much of an imbecile? And so when we use words like that, stupid, imbecile, dumb, well, now we're attacking a person's intelligence. And he says, this is a form of murder. We're putting ourselves in the place of God where we are judging a person as being inferior to ourselves. Pride is rampant in this. But then he says, whoever shall say you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the hell of fire. If there is no problem in discerning between folly and wisdom. We have so much of Scripture that is devoted for us knowing the difference between the two. But it's a different thing to, be in the place, to act as though we are in the place of God and to condemn a person as though he were a fool. Now we're, now we're assaulting the person's character. We move from his intelligence to his character. 
All of these, this kind of anger, there is a righteous anger. There's a legitimate anger. We can be angry and not sin. Ephesians speaks of that. But much, much of anger is not righteous anger. Much of anger is me playing God. If we had the right, if we had the power, we would just snuff that person out. It is evil. It is a form of murder. It's not all the same. We should be clear on this. He's not saying that all anger is sin. Be very clear on that. Anger itself is not sin. It can become sin. It can be sin, but it's not in and of itself sin. We should be very clear that he's not saying the thought of taking someone's life is identical with the act of taking someone's life. It's not the same. We know that. In our own courts of law, we make numerous distinctions when it comes to homicide. I'm not a lawyer, but I've watched lots of law shows. And so I got on the internet and I looked up what are the different forms of homicide. In Texas, there are four types of homicide. They are not equal. They are all homicide, but they're not the same. There is murder. And there in, in Texas and in most states, there are a first and second degree form of murder. Two forms of murder, not just one. First degree and second degree. There is also, well, that by the way, is punishable by five to 99 years in prison and financial penalties. There is capital murder. This is a homicide where you murder a firefighter, a police officer, or an, em an employee of a penal institution. And that is punishable by life. Sentenced to life in prison without parole or the death penalty. There is manslaughter, and there are two types of manslaughter, involuntary manslaughter and voluntary manslaughter. They are both punishable by up to 20 years in prison. And then fourthly, there is criminally negligent homicide. So that's like if you were to accidentally shoot somebody or you would um, be re accidentally responsible for a fatality and then you not um, try to help or call for assistance. So those, our courts of law recognize that, that there are many different situations under which people can die. And they're not identical. In every one of them, somebody dies. Even when it is murder, they are not all the same. There is a first degree and second degree murder. So we need to be clear, Jesus is not saying all sinful anger is the same. It is exactly the same as taking somebody's life. He's making distinctions here. Calling someone rocket, calling someone fool, actually taking someone's life. I'm reminded of what John says in 1 John 5 where he says, all unrighteousness is sin. We would agree with that. All unrighteousness is sin. But John also says in the very next sentence, he says there is a sin which is unto death. And there is a sin which is not unto death. I think he's talking about physical, that you, that you could actually sin in such a way as to bring your life up short from what God had intended for you. Put yourself under the discipline of God where he takes you home. That's my take on that. But John's very clear. All unrighteousness is sin, but all sin is not the same. There is not a single verse in Scripture that says all sin is the same. 
All sin is unrighteousness. All sin is lawlessness. All sin has the wages of death. But it's not all the same. Some are worse than others. Who would not rather have somebody think ill of them than act in ill will toward them, right? I'd much rather have somebody say, you know, Charlie, the other day I really thought about killing you than to have somebody show up at my door with a gun. One is, the, the, the intention is the same. The act, though, is obviously much worse than the thought. But we are not without excuse, is the point. We are all guilty of this. Every single one of us. We are murderers at heart. What should we do? Verse 23. If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. If you're in the middle of worship, and you remember your brother has something against you, stop what you're doing and do what you can to get it right with your brother. And then he uses the illustration of going to court. If your brother is taking you to court, your opponent at law, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way in order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you shall not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Don't put yourself in that situation. These are, are simultaneously both hard and clear, difficult to know where we should stand on this and yet at the same time knowing exactly what we should do. Nothing harder than having right relationships with all people. And nobody does. I hope I'm not saying so too much to say that even Jesus didn't. He said many things that people took offense over. Did many things that people took offense over. It's not easy living in a right relationship with all people. We all have many, many illustrations in our life. I said 20 years ago, I preached on this passage, and I had to think, how have my relationships been with people over the last 20 years? Uncomfortable statement. And I would have to say that there are some relationships that have gotten better because there has been tremendous forgiveness. And I thank God for that. And I'd have to say there are other relationships that are very, very difficult. And there doesn't appear to be any possibility of being at peace. Very, very hard. I know that um, Jesus is saying here, he's speaking, it seems, both to the one who has caused the offense and perhaps he's even speaking to the one who is offended. But clearly he is putting the emphasis on the one who is called, has caused the offense. Go to your brother. Get it right. Don't let him have to take you to court. I remember standing out in the driveway and playing basketball with my kids years ago, and we were just having fun. We were laughing, you know, just playing basketball. It was nothing but laughter. Nice, memorable time. Only the reason I remember it is because while we were playing basketball and laughing and having a good time, 
I heard this woman screaming. And I stopped. And it was a neighbor who lives on the hill above our house. And, and we stopped and we listened. And I went up closer to the house so I could make sure what I was hearing. And, 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 it, it, was a, and it was a pastor's wife that lived in this, in this home. And she's screaming, stop, stop, stop. And I go, what's the matter? And I got close enough that I could see her and ask her what was going on. She goes, my grandchild is trying to sleep and we can't, I can't get my kid to sleep because you're out there making all that noise. And I'm going, and you're standing on your back deck screaming, stop. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I didn't say that to her, but I said, I said, ma'am, I said, these are happy noises. We're not out here yelling at each other. We're just having fun. But I'm sorry. We'll keep it down. And I'm thinking, that is exactly the opposite way to handle a situation, what that woman was doing. I remember youth, you know, I don't have many memories from ever being in a youth group, but we were in a, I remember going out on a youth outing with a church group, and, and I was probably uh, fifth or sixth grade. And, and it was a big day. We were part of a, of a church that was part of a denomination, and we were going to go to the to the to the mother church in, down in Corpus Christi, the biggest of all the churches in that denomination. And so we'd loaded up the bus, and they were going to give us a tour, and I guess I was too excited. And I guess the youth pastor was just too wrung out by excited kids. And I don't recall him asking me to be quiet or to settle down. I don't even recall that I was making a commotion. But as I got off the bus, he was waiting for me, and he grabbed me by the arm, and he yanked my arm around. I thought he was going to pull my arm off. Not the way to handle it when you're angry. His hill has several different neighbors, property that adjoins other properties. And, and at some of that's been good, and some of it's not been so good. We have one gentleman. I pulled up to the office one Friday morning, and... He was there with the local sheriff's deputy. And he was just mad enough to spit nails. And I go, what's happened? And he goes, your horses are on our property again. They keep knocking down our fence and coming onto our property, and I finally have called the sheriff's department. And he says, and, and I go, why didn't you just call up and tell us? We would have been happy to get our horses back. And he says, because no one ever answers the phone. And I said, the only time nobody's in the office is Friday morning, and this is a Friday morning, and everybody's pulling because they have discipleship groups. And I said, you can look. And the sheriff is looking around, the deputy, and, and people are just pouring back onto campus. I said, but we have an answering machine. We'll be more than happy to respond to your messages. And I didn't contend with him. Our horses never knocked down his fence. The fence was knocked down because of floods. Horses don't typically knock down fences. It was the floods that knocked down his fences, and he was not he would not repair his own fences. So I had our, our guys go over there and build back his fence. That's the, so it's, these are difficult things. Just recently, we had a neighbor, one of the neighboring properties, and unknown to the property manager, there was a, a party with 100 or more cars and a lot of drinking, big booze party. And um, it was no big problem for us, except that Michael was up till 2.30 in the morning directing people off of our property and back to where they wanted to go. And, um, and, I, and I thought, I've met the property manager. I really doubt that he knows about this. 
And so I called him up and said, just want to know if you were aware of what was happening on your property the other night. He said, no, thank you so much for telling me. And, um, and, and so he addressed the situation. He kicked off the property, the people that live there. And he called me back or texted me back to tell me that he had handled it and, and said, is there anything more that I need to do? And I said, I wasn't expecting you to do that. But I, I just wanted you to know because I figured you didn't know. And so then a couple days later, he texted again. He saw, we saw that your, one of your fences off on the road was somebody crashed into it. And he goes, I assume that was somebody that was at our party, the party that took place on our property. And he says, get a bid and um, tell me how much it cost, and, um, and we will pay to have that fence repaired. Well, it just happened the same morning, we got a phone call from the lady who actually did crash into the fence. And she took responsibility for it and said that she wanted to take care of that. And so I texted our property manager friend back and I said, I'm so impressed that you would assume responsibility when it wasn't even your responsibility. You just assume that because it happened on the same night, it was one of the people that was on your property. I said, I never assumed that. And see, love goes both ways. Love doesn't assume the worst. And I never assumed that it was somebody from that property that did that. And, and he, though, in love for us, and I don't know if the man's a believer, I don't have any idea, but he's assumed that it was his responsibility. And he did what was going to do whatever it would take to make it right. And the reason that stands out for, to me is because it's so rare that that guy was bending over backwards to make sure he had a good relationship with us, even taking responsibility where he had no responsibility. Even if it had been somebody that was on his property, they were not on his property with permission, and most people would not take responsibility for something like that. And this is what Jesus is speaking to. If you know that your brother has something against you, leave your offering and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother. It's this ministry of reconciliation this ministry that we've been given in Christ, as Paul speaks to in 2 Corinthians, where he says that we have, we, are, we have the ministry of reconciliation. It is being Christ-like. It's allowing Christ to reproduce his life in us to where we are more concerned with reconciliation than we are with this person being removed from our life. We don't want them removed. We want things to be right with them. We certainly don't want them to die. We want things to be restored. This is the attitude that Jesus is speaking about. Now, when he says, make friends with your opponent at law, if you put these two statements together, it seems to me that Jesus is, is speaking foremost to the one who has actually created the offense. Typically, unless we're living in America in the 21st century, people don't take you to court over something that you're not guilty for doing. At least in the first century, you were taken to court because you were actually guilty. And so Jesus is saying, it should not have to come to this. Get it right. We had an individual one time that I tried to buy carpet from and did on one occasion, and, and um, everything went smoothly, no problem. So we needed carpet a second time. I used the same guy, um, represented himself as a Christian businessman, had a little fish on his um, on his. Um, Yellow Pages advertisement. So this is dating it. goes back a few years. And long story short, um, he took the money and didn't give us our carpet. 
And then he tried to avoid me and wouldn't answer my phone calls, wouldn't be at his place of business when I'd go down to it. Finally got a hold of him on the phone and said to him, this is not about the carpet anymore. This is about you representing yourself as a Christian. And I said, I would do everything humanly possible to keep myself from being thought of by others the way that I think about you. Have a good day. Because <laughs> so I knew I couldn't get the money out of him. It was beyond that. And um, we got a phone call in the office shortly after, and he says, the, the, the carpet is in my warehouse. Come and get it anytime you'd like. So he, he responded to that. This is not the way that two people who are Christians, who represent themselves as brothers in Christ, should be relating to each other. The offender ought to be doing everything possible to make this situation right, even if it was something beyond his control. I had a friend who was in business with another individual, and they built holiday inns all across the United States. And his business partner embezzled a ton of money and fled the United States and left my friend holding the bag. And so now he's got big debts, and he, not by any fault of his own, and people standing out there going, you took my money, where's the product? Well, it's in Europe with the buddy. And that man decided, a Christian man, he would do whatever it would take to pay back all those people. It took him years, but he got it all paid back. In the meantime, he had many people that just abandoned him because they viewed him as being at fault. And that actually a ministry rose out of that because he thought, I, I never want to have, I never want to see people go through a situation like I did so totally abandoned with people believing the worst. So he became a businessman ministering to businessmen and helping them go through situations just like what he went through. We should be urgent about reconciliation is what Jesus is saying. We should be willing to do whatever it takes to get things right. He's saying that this is, this is amazing. I believe Jesus is saying to the one who has caused the offense, you have, you have given occasion for anger to reside in the, in the heart of your brother. It's because of you he's angry. We've all been through this. And it's so easy to say, well, I didn't cause this. He is choosing this. I get it. I believe that Jesus would say to us, if you are the one that your brother is angry with, do everything you can to deliver your brother from a murderous heart. You should be concerned about the murder that is in his heart. Be concerned for his heart. Do what you can to separate him from that murderous heart. Go to him. Seek to talk it out. It's not always possible. I get it. Paul says, insofar as it is possible, live at peace with all men. And there are some men that cannot, will not be reconciled, and there's just no way to make it happen. I understand. I'm not idealistic with this. But I believe that Jesus is saying that we should be concerned about the anger that resides in someone else's heart 
when they're saying that we are the cause of that anger. In the epistle of James, James wrote and said, He who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's being concerned for your brother's heart. The point of reconciliation is to seek to preserve the unity that Jesus Christ has secured between us by the very blood of Christ. To minimize the importance of preserving unity is to minimize the importance of Christ's shed blood. The only reason Christians are one with each other is because Jesus died for us and made us one. That is the only reason. It's not because we're nice people with good personalities and we're just like everybody loves to be around us. You can be the nicest person in the world and have no friends, have nobody that wants to be with you. The core reason for unity is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And when we are not concerned about preserving that unity, when we don't step forward and try to restore what has been potentially or actually lost, it's as though we are trampling underfoot the blood of Christ and all that He has done for us. We should be serious and intentional about reconciliation so as to deliver ourselves from God's discipline. Think, well, I, what's going to happen? I just go to another church, or he'll just go to another church and just move on with life. I'm afraid God doesn't move on. And we say, he says, go to your opponent at law that you might deliver yourself and not be taken to court. There's an issue here of, deliver, of, of, of discipline and judgment that Jesus is speaking to. That person may be out of your life because of what you have done. But that doesn't mean the problem's over. God is still wanting to put his finger on this. And ultimately, as I said, we should be intentional, purposeful, serious, about reconciliation so that Christ is modeled in our hearts. One person said, because no one ever fully has right attitudes toward everyone else, no worship ultimately is acceptable. Thus, everything Jesus teaches in this passage is how to show the absolute perfect standard of God's righteousness in the absolutely impossible task of our meeting that standard in our own power. He shatters self-righteousness in order to drive us to His righteousness, which alone is acceptable to God. That, I, I appreciate that because that is right on the spot on of what God, Jesus, is saying in this passage. Ultimately, we all have relationships that are not as they should be. None of us can say we have done everything we can and should in every relationship to be right with people. And that should humble us and strip away the self-righteousness that there is no murder in my heart. The fact that I can live not being at peace with others when Jesus died so that I would be at peace with others is indication of a murderous heart.
Listen to these verses. Be angry, yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your own anger. We've all heard that, that verse. I use it in marriage counseling all the time. Premarital counseling, that's one verse when I've got, let's go to this verse, okay? This is how you have to live in marriage. You, ha- you cannot let the sun go down on your anger. I'd have to tell you, though, it's really not until preparing for this sermon that I realized that's not just a verse about reconciling. It is that. But it is more, perhaps, a verse just simply about my own heart. Patsy and I have endeavored to live, we haven't done it perfectly, but to live uh, praying every night before we go to sleep, holding hands as we pray. And the big reason that I've been so inclined to do that, and I know Patsy has as well, because it's very, very difficult to pray together, holding hands, and be mad at each other. And so it's a revealer of our hearts. And we know we've got to talk things out. But sometimes, honestly, the other person is not in a position where they can talk. It's too raw. It's too hurtful. They just need some time and maybe even a little space. But I can deal with my heart. See, I can't always make peace. I can't always reconcile. But I can be sure that in my heart, the sun has not set on my anger. This is more about personal responsibility toward our own heart. That is something that we can can bring before God. Somebody else's heart and reconciling, getting the problems resolved can't always happen. But that doesn't let me off the hook. Am I going to bed with anger in my heart? Shouldn't be. I'm allowing murder to well up within me. And by the way, in applying this passage, I hope that you are not just looking out there or even out here. Those are important things. Those distant relationships from years past, the current relationships perhaps of this body, but first and foremost, your marriages. Your marriages. More important to get things right than to even come to church. I would pray that it would not be an either or. Coming to church, I think, helps to get things right. But before you think about the workplace relationships or the second and third cousin that you haven't seen in 20 years, I would say, what about your wife? What about your husband? Do you need to stop? Maybe stop and put down your Bible from having your Bible reading and go in the next room and get things right with your spouse. Proverbs 19.11 says a man's anger, a man's discretion, I'm sorry, makes him slow to anger. And it is glory, it is his glory to overlook a transgression. So that tells us, again, it's putting responsibility back on the one who's mad, who's angry. You don't have to talk about every offense. We should be adult enough, mature enough to come before the Lord and let him deal with our hearts. There's not to say be passive and never talk about anything. I'm just saying 
God wants you to practice His heart, to manifest His heart, where His heart of overlooking transgressions is our heart. I heard of a young man when he started out in the ministry as a youth pastor. I don't know what he did. I don't remember the whole story, but some woman was so angry with him, and she was just tearing the hide off of him and even threatening to sue him and get him fired. And so he walked into the pastor's office, and he was just, just, just on, on the verge of tears. And he just said, I, I, don't, I don't know what to do, but i, I got to tell you what's happening. This, this lady, she was just screaming at me and you know, threatening to get me fired and, and you know, even wanting to sue me. And he goes, what's her name? And this pastor used to be a linebacker in college. He's the kind of guy who likes to hit people. And he goes, what's her name? And he, and, well, this, and he says, we'll deal with this right now. Picks it up and he says, if anybody's going to sue anybody, it's going to be me over the way you suited this, the way you treated this man. Hanging off the phone and he goes, I don't think you'll be having any more trouble with her. And he, you know, and he goes, that is not what Jesus is talking about here. <laughs> slow to anger. James says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Colossians 3.13 says, Bear with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And I tell you, one of the most convicting passages, but I need it, is from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 20 to 22, where Solomon writes and he says, There is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Isn't that true? Also, do not take seriously all words which are spoken, lest you have your servant, hear your servant cursing you. For you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. That's a good verse, isn't it? There is no righteous person who does good continually. Look in the mirror. None of us does good continually. Do not take seriously when you hear your servant cursing you. For you also have likewise many times cursed others. So why are you getting so angry about what you've heard that someone has said about you? Not every transgression or offense needs to be confronted, I think is the point of these verses taken in the aggregate. Clearly, the offended person is responsible to forgive. And the offender is responsible to make amends, to reconcile. We should not just be passive in every, in a, and in no situation ever confront. But neither do we need to take responsibility for everyone else's offenses. My mom, I loved her to death and so grateful for her influence in my life. Whenever she heard of anyone who had the slightest issue with her, she could not rest until she had done everything possible to make it I appreciated the, the intent 
but at times I felt that she was living under too much of a burden, that she was making herself responsible for every other person's emotions. And when you live in a society in a time when everybody is a snowflake, it is hard to live life being responsible for everyone else's emotions. We need to be responsible for our own emotions. And yet, again, as Jesus is saying, when we have clearly caused offense, get it right. Humble yourself. Acknowledge it. Go to that person. Ask for forgiveness. And if you are on the receiving end of that forgiveness, be gracious. Seldom, as you have replayed this maybe in your mind a thousand times, boy, if that person would just come to me and apologize, and you have this whole scenario of what it will look like, I guarantee you it will not look like what you've been imagining. You are not going to hear the exact words that you've been playing over and over again in your mind. You will not see them, you know, I mean, it's like every woman has in her, in her mind the picture of what her proposal will look like. He's going to get down on his knee. He's going to have this huge, humongous headlight of a, of a ring for me. You know, there's going to be angels singing in the background, and people are going to be stopping, ooh, you know, and you're going to, but I tell you, whatever you've got in your mind, it will not be what you're imagining. You may get some of it right, but you're not going to get all of it right. The same thing is true when a person comes to you and seeks to make amends. It's not going to be all that you want it to be. Be gracious. Forgive as you've been forgiven. And for that kind of forgiveness is not waiting for an apology. And it doesn't have to be picture perfect. I had a, we had a friend that had, had, had done so many things wrong toward me and Patsy. Unbelievable. And we were very, very concerned for her, truly very, very concerned for her heart, for her spirit, because she was not in a good place. But thankfully, by the grace of God, over the next couple of years, ever so often I would get a phone call from her. And she would give a little bit more, another step toward apologizing, reconciling. Forgiveness was not an issue. We'd forgiven her. We loved her. But she was not free in her heart. She needed, as God brought things to mind that she had done, she needed to call us up and say, I need to apologize for this too. And we're going, you're already forgiven. You don't need to continue doing this. But she goes, but I do. God has brought this to my mind of what I did to you. I need to, again, ask for your forgiveness. None of those things were perfect. Not a single phone call was what I had imagined it would ultimately be. But I had to understand her heart is in the right place. She's moving toward reconciliation. She's wanting the relationship to be restored. Let it go. Be gracious. Don't demand a perfect apology. You shouldn't even demand an apology. We simply forgive as we've been forgiven. That is our responsibility as the one who's been offended. And if you're the offender, get it right. And for all of us, understand this anger that we hold in our hearts toward other people 
is murderous. It is murderous. And there should be no self-righteousness in us when it comes to thinking that we are not guilty of murder. It is in all of us. And it is only because of the blood of Christ that we do not stand condemned. I'll close us in prayer. God, I do thank you again for your word and for your ways. Thank you that you are a loving, compassionate, long-suffering God who does not count our trespasses against us, but you have cleansed us, washed us with the blood of Christ, canceled the certificate of debt against us. And I pray, God, that we would cancel the certificate of debt that we often hold in our hearts toward those many times that we love the most, our spouses, our family members, our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would just consider it canceled. There is no debt against us, as you have canceled the debt against us. That we would seek God to forgive as we've been forgiven and seek to reconcile, especially where we have caused offense that we would walk humbly and that we would see the seriousness, God, of what this involves. The very sanctity of life is at stake where we would hold in our heart that brooding, simmering, resentful anger. It is murderous instead of living lives that are free and full and forgiving. Thank you, Jesus, that you live in us to live out these truths, to flesh them out in our life. Because we are helpless and powerless, God, apart from you, to live in this way. In Jesus' name.